Our sermon text for this morning can be found in the New Testament. Please flip with me in your Bibles to John chapter 20. In contrast to our Old Testament reading, uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 are much shorter. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Loving God, you gave the world Christ Jesus as a light amidst our darkness. I ask that you would illumine us from your word this morning with the light of Christ that by the merits of his passion we may be led to eternal life through the same Christ who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God and forever. Amen. In my past several afternoon sermons, uh, we have started a new series looking at the questions in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And this morning we're going to continue on with the third question, and this afternoon we will look at the fourth question. So far in this series, we have answered uh, the world's most thought about question. Right? What is this meaning of life? The Shorter Catechism provides a very short uh, and concise answer that we are created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And this question in itself kind of logically brings about the next question. What have we been given to tell us, uh, to tell us how to glorify God and, and to enjoy Him? And the answer is Scripture, Right? It's a little more complicated, but both found in the Old and the New Testament. And finally, our third question that we will address this morning also follows a bit logically, and it says, okay, well, what do scriptures principally teach? Right? What's, what's the deal with this, this giant thousand-page book? I mean, how do we summarize this? What is, what is the gist of this? Right? That's, that might seem a bit crass, but I'm legitimately asking you to think about that right now. Think about that. If you were to walk out of this building this morning, um, and maybe you were walking to your car, and, and people walk on these sidewalks all the time, right? What if someone walking along that sidewalk uh, looks over and sees a bunch of adults coming out of a kid daycare center? They're thinking, what on, what on earth is going on? And then they come up to you and maybe ask some questions, and they see this giant book underneath your arm, right? And they ask you, what is that? What is, what, 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 you reply, the Bible. And they say, okay, what, what's the Bible? What is that about? How would you reply? What would your answer be? Jesus? Right? Giving that quintessential Sunday school answer might be correct, but uh, is it sufficient? What is the main point of the Bible? Have you ever thought of that? We spend a lot of time reading passages of Scripture and we listen to podcasts or perhaps you read commentaries or study the Bible with a group of friends and we go through the Word of God uh, one little digestible section at a time. Right? But have you ever stopped to think about the book as a whole? What is the main point of the Bible? The Westminster Standards say that Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Think about this. 400 years ago, a group of pastors and uh, theologians got together and thought really long and really hard about this question. What does the Bible teach us? 
And their answer came back pretty short and sweet and twofold. And I propose that this is something that we should commit to memory. First, the Bible teaches us what man is to believe concerning God. What do we know about God? And secondly, the Bible teaches us what God requires of man. So if someone were to come up to you at work or perhaps school or soccer practice or whatever it is you do in the afternoons and ask, uh, what is this Bible thing that you talk about? What is the Bible all about? I think that if you replied with our confessional response, this two-part answer, I think that that conversation would go pretty well, right? All you'd have to say is the Bible teaches us that we're supposed to, what we're supposed to believe about God. And whoever ta- who you're talking to is going to be drawn into that question, and they're going to ask, okay, so, so what are we supposed to believe about God? And what does God say that we're supposed to be doing? You see, these confessions that we have been given in our Reformed tradition are, are not stodgy old documents that, that were written for Christians of old. I mean, they're kind of written in some uh, old language that we might not use today, but it's a beautiful language, and they're beautiful points well penned for us. And these questions and answers are things that we can commit to memory. And not only are they helpful for us to understand more about God and His will, but they prepare us. They prepare us to share our hope, right, with those whom God places in our lives. Christian, what do the Scriptures principally teach is the third question. The Scriptures principally teach what man is to know concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Now, while these questions might be a good start, we should probably be prepared with at least one or two script, you know, scriptures, Bible verses, to back up this claim that we're making. Right? And that's what brings us to our passage this morning, these very uh, short and concise two verses right? found in, in the Gospel of John right here towards the end in chapter 20. And since our passage is so short this morning, I'd like to read it one more time together. So please look with me. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe and that that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Have you ever sat through a a movie or perhaps you've, you've spent a lot of time reading a book with a really complex thought and when you get to the end of this thing, you're left wondering... What on earth was that about? Right? Uh, a few years ago, I had a friend in Kerrville who recommended that I go see a movie by myself. This is something that I've never done, but he started doing this practice. Once a month, he would go by himself. He'd leave his wife and kids behind and just spend one evening by himself going to see a movie. And he thought it was a really good practice, and he was trying to convince me to do it. So I, I thought, all right, I'll go to dinner by myself, and I'll go see a movie by myself. And so I went to go see this movie, Dune. And, and the plot is completely irrelevant. Completely irrelevant. But I left that movie frustrated, right? Wondering why. There's some giggles out here, so I assume maybe you have the same question, right? Why? Right? I spent more time at home, right, Googling and trying to figure out what on earth is the meaning of this movie than I did actually watching the movie, right? And after all that work, I was still just as confused. And I was left wondering, right? Dune Part 2 comes out this spring, so maybe we'll be given some answers, and that'll shed some light on this story. Um, I, I suppose I could go ahead and read the book, but I, don't, I, I read too many books right now. I don't have time for that. Um, but silly movies aside, silly movies aside, John, when writing the account of Jesus, he didn't want to leave us wondering. 
He didn't want us questioning what was the point of all of that, right? John didn't want us wondering that. So towards the end of his gospel, he flat out provides his purpose in writing this book, right? There's no need for, uh, for Googling or guessing here, right? For those of you with ESV Bibles, there's, there's a title right before these two verses, and it spells it out. It says, this is the purpose of this book, right? That's the section title. So we're not left wondering what on earth this account was written for. The Bible tells us that man, uh, of what man is to believe concerning God. And here in John, we see that man needs to understand that Jesus is the Christ. And he is the Son of God. Right? We need to understand that Jesus was not just some sandal-wearing, uh, bearded hippie uh, who proclaimed peace and love to uh, everyone that he met. Right? Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. And secondly, this passage tells us what duty God requires of man. Our duty is to believe that Jesus is the Christ, to believe that he is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, to believe that he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So this morning, we're going to unpack these two truths found in the Gospel of John. We're going to, we're going to uh, unpack what we are to believe about God and what does God require of us. Now, when it comes to what the Bible says that we are to believe concerning God, it's uh, clearly difficult to find one passage of Scripture that contains an exhaustive list of all of his traits. Right? Think about that for a second. If I were to ask each one of you in this room to uh, list one attribute of God, I'd be willing to bet that we could find as many answers as there are people in this room. Right? It's, a, it's a huge list. Who is God? What is he about? What does the Scripture tell us? God is great. God is powerful. God is all-knowing. He's loving and he's kind and so on and so forth. And the more you think about it, the more attributes that are going to start popping in your mind. Right? And this afternoon, we're actually going to look at that. We're going to look at the fourth question of the Shorter Catechism and discover that God is a spirit. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, his wisdom, his power, his truth, his holiness, his justice, his goodness. It's quite a list of attributes. But this morning, we will attempt to stick to our text here in John. What does the Apostle John tell us about God? And I think what he's trying to tell us can all be boiled down to one word, signs. Please look with me at verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. It is here that we recognize that Jesus performed many more signs and wonders than what was recorded in John's gospel. Right? And when I think about these many other signs, uh, when we think about these things, Calvin actually states that it's not the other miracles that are unworthy of being recorded, but because these which John did record were sufficient to edify the faith. Let me say that one more time. The signs that Jesus performed uh, and, and that John recorded are sufficient to edify the faith. These signs in the book of John are sufficient. Sufficiency denotes a bit of importance. So let's dig into these signs just a little bit more. What is a sign? 
Right? I'm, I'm not a betting man, but I'm willing to bet uh, that you did pass a few signs on your way here to church this morning. Right? Signs are everywhere. And what is it that they do? If the sign is any good, it's going to point you somewhere worth going. Right? My family and I pass a lot of signs on our way, uh, on our 30-minute drive to church every Sunday morning. But there's one sign that gets my particular attention. You see, we spent over 15 years living in Colorado, and I never saw this particular sign there. Right? It's orange, and it's a little bit white. And as many of you know, a little over a year ago, I was diagnosed with celiac disease. Right? It's this autoimmune thing where your body decides to, to eat itself if you ingest gluten. Right? And gluten is everywhere, and it's all the best of the foods. And it's in this one thing that I craved for 15 years living outside of Texas. And it's now off the menu now that we live here. Right? A big, juicy, double meat, double cheese water burger. Right? And every Sunday, we, on our way to church, we pass by that giant orange and white W. Every single Sunday, most days of the week, too. If I go out of my house, you pass a Whataburger. Right? And that Whataburger sign points us to something that's pretty great. Right? At least in, in my opinion. Um, however, is that sign your ultimate destination? Is that the end game? I mean, what would happen if you pulled up to that sign, uh, you rolled down your window on, on the side of the road, and you asked that sign uh, for a, a, a delicious hamburger, right? What does it do? Well, uh, the sign would not provide you with a burger. The sign points. It serves a purpose. It points us to a place where we can find that thing. We can find that hamburger, right? That's all the sign does. Signs convey important information, and they point beyond themselves to something even greater. The same thing goes for signs that we find in the Bible. The signs that we find in Scripture are meant to convey information to us, and they point us to something greater. Right? And unlike Whataburger signs that point us to a full belly, biblical signs convey important spiritual truths about the nature of God. And in the case of the, the signs found in John's Gospel, these signs convey the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Son of God. I think it's interesting to note that there is a reason that John does not call these amazing deeds of Jesus miracles. Right? That word exists in his language, but he doesn't call these things that Jesus does miracles. He calls them signs. Because Jesus' miracles are not the ultimate destination. Christ is. So let's step outside of our sermon passage for one minute and, and talk about these signs that John records throughout his book so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. Many of us who grew up attending Sunday school uh, might remember that Jesus performed a lot of miracles, right, that we find in the three synoptic Gospels. He healed the blind, he, he uh, made, uh, healed the leopard, uh, the lame, he walked on water, he cast out demons, and there's others. Right? I think the official number is up to around 37. Um, anyways, how many signs are recorded in John's gospel? Any guesses? Seven. Seven. Why seven? What is so significant about seven? Right? The answer is absolutely everything. Seven is a magnificent number. Right? It was used as an important symbol in the ancient Near East culture and also in the Israelite culture. I mean, this number seven communicated a sense of fullness, a sense of completeness. 
In the original Hebrew language in the Old Testament, they didn't use vowels uh, in the original Hebrew text, right? They just used consonants. And these, the, the word seven uh, was spelled using three consonants. And those same three consonants are used in the word complete. Which brings a whole new light to the, frequency, the frequent appearance of seven, right? And this thing that, this pattern that, that just we see over and over and over again in the Bible. The image of seven means completeness. How many days did it take for God to complete his creation in Genesis? Not seven, six, right? But on the seventh day, God rested from his work, and he set up this pattern, this pattern of rest that continues to this day, seven. Seven signifies uh, complete, and John includes seven signs performed by Jesus in his gospel. Right? So we might be inclined to infer that in John... Uh, he's highlighting seven signs that are complete. They are sufficient. Sufficient. Jesus turns water into wine. He cleanses the temple. He heals the nobleman's son, the lame man. He feeds the multitude. He heals the blind. And finally, he raises Lazarus. All seven of these signs are explicitly uh, uh, referred to as signs within the text itself. They're all actions that are done in public and not in secret. Right? And all of these seven signs direct the attention to the glory of God revealed through Christ Jesus. And they serve uh, to publicly authenticate Jesus and who he is as God's chosen representative. Right? There's so much more significance to the completeness of these seven signs. But what I want you to know, the big point is, uh, each one of these signs appeals to one of God's attributes. Right? Uh, uh, Jesus' first sign, he turns water into wine at the wedding in Canaan. Jesus is the author of joy. He's the healer of broken hearts. He is the bread of life that satisfies. He opens our eyes so that in, in the light of Christ and through Christ, we have the power to overcome death. Right? What a beautiful and complete picture of what we are given in just this one word, signs. You see, the Westminster theologians uh, were correct in proclaiming that Scripture sufficiently teaches us what we are to believe concerning the authority of God. Which brings us to our second point this, uh, found in our text this morning. What does God require of man? Let's take a look back at our passage this morning. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. Why are they written? so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And why is this important? That by believing, you may have life in his name. Our catechism question this morning uh, asks, what do the scriptures principally teach? And the answer is this. Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Duties are actions. That we can perform, right? They're verbs. And we can find an action word in our passage this morning. There's one verb that's repeated and it sticks out. Belief. John wrote about the signs of Jesus so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. So that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So this word belief is kind of important, I think. And it's worthy of our attention this morning. 
In the book of John, I would argue, uh, I would argue the entire collection of books in the Bible, but the, books in, uh, the book of John is written because there is an action required on our part. Belief. Do you believe? We all believe something, right? But what is it? In what do you believe? The word believe is an important thread woven throughout John's text. He uses this word uh, almost a hundred times in 21 chapters. That's a lot. He repeats this word over and over and over and over and over again. John wrote his account of Jesus' life so that we might believe. But believe in what? This past week, I've been helping our kids learn math, right? We're, we're doing the homeschool thing. We're on year two. This is good. Um, but my older girls are now getting into division, right? And that has some really difficult concepts. So I'm not going to really bore you with the details. But at its core, I think that we can all agree that there is some truth to math that we all understand, right? I was taught at a very young age. I can't even remember when I was taught. But I was taught that one plus one equals two, Right? I understand that claim. I understand that equation. And on top of that, I've come to believe that this equation is true. One plus one equals two. Right? And the same thing is required of Jesus. First, we have to understand the claims. We need to hear that he claims. Uh, we need to hear who he claimed to be and what he claims to accomplish. And it's only after that we grasp those facts it's only after that that we can come to confess that the claims are indeed truth. Pastor Weed has been talking about this concept a little bit these past few weeks as he studied the backstory of Paul. He preached on that, right? Paul was Saul before he became Paul, right? Saul hated Christians and he persecuted them. He killed them and men and women, right? He persecuted them all the same. And Saul's conversion... Uh, Mark was, uh, Pastor Wheat, uh, was telling us that Saul's conversion wasn't this instantaneous thing, right? He went to the city, and it took three days, and he had time uh, to first hear these claims of Christ. And he wrestled with these things before he believed. So what are we to believe? Our passage this morning provides the details in the equation. John wrote his account so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. But before we believe, we need to understand these two claims. Jesus the Christ and Jesus the Son of God. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? The title of Christ is, is added to Jesus' name as it means he is the anointed one. right? The, the promised one that God uh, promised years long ago. right? It's uh, the one who was promised to save his people from their inadequacies. You see, Christ was the seed of Eve who would eventually crush the serpent's head. You see, Christ is the seed of Abraham who all the people in the earth would be blessed through. Right? Christ is the ultimate prophet. He's better than Moses of whom we are to listen to and pay attention to. Christ is the ultimate priest in the order of Melchizedek who has made sufficient atonement for our sins. And Christ is the king, the son of David, who has conquered all of his enemies and has won our hearts with his faithfulness. So in short, Jesus the Christ is God's chosen Messiah. What about God, John's second claim? 
What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? This claim is a crystal clear reference to his divine and human natures. Right? Jesus is a man, the Son of Man, who was born of woman. But more than that, he was begotten of God. Jesus is God. He is God with us, Emmanuel. Right? John's Gospel has uh, promised this claim of divinity from the very beginning. Right? In chapter 1, uh, we, we learn that he is the eternal word of God. He is the one who existed in the beginning, who was with God, and who was God. Jesus is the one, this second person of the Trinity. He is the eternal word of God who became flesh and he lived among us. John wrote his gospel so that we might understand these claims. That we might understand that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? Because he wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that these claims are truth. And that we can find rest in knowing him. These things were written so that you and I would believe. But understanding and agreeing with these claims uh, does not necessarily equal belief. Belief in these truths, belief in these, belief in these claims, involve a measure of trust. Right? A measure of dependence of who this Christ is and what he has done for us. For when we, see, uh, when we see Christ for who he truly is, right, it inevitably drives us to our knees. We are humbled by our inability to save ourselves. Right? Sin has this grasp on us, and, uh, and it does not want to let us go. But when we acknowledge that what he has accomplished through us, through, his, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we are drawn to Christ because of who he is and what he has done. Story does not end there, though. John tells us that this duty that God requires of man brings with it a really great reward. Please look with me again at verse 31. But these are written that you may, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you have true life in his name? Christian, if you confess that, that Jesus is uh, Lord, and if you believe in your heart that Jesus raised him, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? For uh, Paul tells us, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Scripture says that everyone who believes in him will not perish. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And if you don't believe... The invitation is there for you today. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you too will be saved. In conclusion, if you've ever been asked or if you are ever asked in the future, what is the Bible about? You now have a robust answer. right? Not only found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, but you have a complete answer in John Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. The Bible teaches us what man is to know concerning God. And the Bible teaches us what duty God requires of man. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We come to you tired and weary and broken. We come to you as a sinful people in need of your grace.
Lord, we thank you that your Son is the Christ. We thank you that your Son is the Son of God. And that by believing in him, we might be saved. Father, I pray for us this week that we would meditate on these truths, that we'd be given opportunities to share these truths and pray for those who need these truths. Lord, we lift up these things in your holy name. Amen.